We're excited to begin a new series today, and the series is entitled Welcome Home. We know this time of year, people tend to connect or reconnect the church for the first time. And, um, and we're coming out of a season where a lot of us have been home or we've welcomed people into our homes. And home is a thing that evokes a lot of different emotions. For some of us, the idea of going home brings excitement. It brings anticipation. For others of us, home is a mess. It's a place that brings anxiety. I can remember the week of Thanksgiving, I kept getting texts from people saying, pray for me, I'm going home. I don't want to discuss politics over Turkey, you know? And so there's just this, this whole thing of home. But regardless of our experience of home, we know that home is something that we long for. We long to be at a place where we can be at home. As I was thinking about home this week, I was reminded of, of one of the biggest seasons in my life where I longed for home. The summer after my junior year of college, I went to China, northwestern China, in fact, and had a lot of bizarre food. I chose not to show you the really bizarre food. Let's go back one. Let's go back one. I chose to show you not, 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 not bizarre food, although this stuff right here, this is like a really dairy-rich tea, and now being somebody who can't have dairy, it makes me terrified to look at. Uh, but I spent two months there, and I had some great food. I had some weird food, and I had a ton of stomach problems. And so I won't go into detail there. You can just you know, use your imagination. But I was so excited to come home and eat the food that wouldn't make me sick. And so this was pre-Facebook and pre-smartphones. And so I sent my mom an email, and I said, Mom, when I get home, I have two requests. I want Dr. Pepper and enchiladas. And, and just the thought of those like, got me through that last week in China. Um, and I don't drink that anymore because I'm not big into soda. And I can't have sour cream enchiladas anymore because of the dairy issue. But, but still, like, that, that's what feels like home to me. And today we're going to dive into a famous story about coming home. The story is traditionally known as the parable of the prodigal son. The word prodigal means wasteful or, or reckless. And I have to admit, I've avoided teaching on this story for my whole pastoral career. This is the very first sermon I've ever preached on the parable of the prodigal son. And the reason why is, is that I think I have a reaction some of you just had. Oh my gosh, another story in the parable of the prodigal son. And sometimes because we've heard a story that much, we tend to roll our eyes and we think that we've like seen it all or heard it all, or there's nothing new for us to hear. And I have to admit, that's kept me from preaching this sermon for years. But today, my prayer is that you would come with fresh eyes and ask God to speak something new into your heart. And one of the things that's helped me to engage with this story, this parable, is a book by Henry Nouwen called The Return of the Prodigal Son, A Story of Homecoming. Nowen spent three days with this painting that was done by Rembrandt. And he spent three days sitting in front of it and meditating on it and reflecting on it and, and seeing what Rembrandt saw that led to this great work of art. And the book emerged. And in the same way that Nowen found some things that he hadn't seen, even as a pastor and someone who'd spent a lot of time with this parable, I hope today leads you to see and hear things that you haven't seen before. That's where this series begins, this Welcome Home series. We're going to talk about the home that we want to create for people in our church. We're going to talk about the place we want to create and the people we want to be. And so our big idea this morning is this. 
We want to create a place where people are welcomed home. As a church, our desire is to create a place where people are welcomed home. Our desire with our groups and with our lives is that people could discover home by connecting with us. And to to help us understand that, we're going to dive into the story known as the parable of the prodigal son. Now, because so many of us are overly familiar with this passage, it's kind of like the movie A Christmas Story. You know, some of you have seen it 50 or 100 times. You have it memorized. We're going, to, we're going to read it from a different translation. We're going to read it from the message translation this morning, which is a translation from Eugene Peterson. And hopefully through that, we'll hear and see some things that we haven't before. And so we're going to begin in verse 11 of Luke 15. Luke is the third biography of Jesus recorded in the Bible. And here's how the passage begins. This is Jesus speaking. Then he said, there once was a man who had two sons. The younger said to his father, father, I want right now what's coming to me. So the father divided the property between them. That's the older son and the younger son. It wasn't long before the younger son packed his bag and he left for a distant country. There, undisciplined and dissipated, he wasted everything he had. After he'd gone through all of his money, there was a bad famine all through that country, and he began to hurt. So he signed on with a citizen there who assigned him to his fields to slop the pigs, which means to feed the pigs. He was so hungry, he would have eaten the corn cobs and the pig slop, but no one would give him any. I mean, even the pigs weren't sharing with him. And that brought him to his senses. And he said, all of those farmhands working for my father back at home, they sit down to three meals a day. And here I am, and I'm starving to death. I'm going back to my father. I'll say to him, father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me on as a hired hand. So he got right up and he went home to his father. And when he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His heart pounding, he ran out and embraced and kissed his son. The son started a speech. Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't ever deserve to be called your son again. But the father wasn't listening. We'll come back to that phrase. He was calling to his servants, quick, bring a clean set of clothes and dress him. Put the family ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring a grain-fed heifer, for those of you who are into that these days, and roast it. We're going to feast. We're going to have a wonderful time. My son is here, given up for dead and now alive, given up for lost and now found. And they began to have a wonderful time. All this time, his older son, though, was out in the field. And when the day's work was done, his older son came in. As he approached the house, he heard the music and the dancing. Calling over to one of the houseboys, he asked what was going on. He said, your brother came home. Your father has ordered a feast, barbecued beef, because he has him home safe and sound. The older brother stalked off in an angry sulk and refused to join in. His father came out and tried to talk to him, but he wouldn't listen. The son said, look how many years I've stayed here serving you, never giving you one moment of grief. And have you ever thrown a party for me and my friends? Then this son of yours has thrown away your money on whores shows up and you all go out with a feast. His father said, son, you don't understand. You're with me all the time. And everything that is mine is yours. But this is a wonderful time and we had to celebrate. This brother's of yours was dead and he's now alive. He's lost 
and now he's found. God, I pray through this story, even amidst its familiarity to many of us, I pray that you'd speak powerfully to our hearts today. Pray that you'd show us where we fit in this story. And I pray that we would have a new encounter with you this morning. In your name we pray, amen. This morning, I want to share with you what I'm calling four new reflections from a familiar story. Acknowledging that for many of us, we've spent time with this story, but expecting and anticipating that God is something new for us. And the first reflection is this. I am the younger brother. I am the younger brother. If you came in and got a bulletin, there's a handout, and you can fill in these blanks as we go along. Now, I chose intentionally to put the word I there, and you'll see the other ones, some of them are we, because I want us to put ourselves into this story. I want us to locate ourselves in the midst of this story because I believe even though 2,000 years separate the telling of this story and our life today, I believe this story is ours. You know, one of Frank Sinatra's most famous songs includes the phrase, I did it my way. It's a song that many of us know. And the essence of this story is, I did it my way. And many of us can relate to that because that's the essence of our story. It's the essence of the human story that begins with Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 3, where they tell God, hey God, guess what? We're going to do it my way. We're going to do it our way. And the truth is, when we do it our way, we end up in a very dark place. Like that video represented that we watched. When we go and do it our way, many of us get lost. We get separated. We end up in places that we never thought we would be. We end up in places that, that are overwhelming. And we, we say to ourselves, I'm just going to keep trying to figure this out on my own. And, and the story begins with the son saying something that's pretty provocative. He says to his father, basically, dad, you're dead to me. He says, hey, I wish you were dead. And since you're not indulging me and just dying, can I have your money? Now, what you have to understand is, is teenage rebellion is not a new thing. And teenage rebellion in the ancient world was handled a lot more strictly than it is in ours. This world that Jesus is speaking to was still governed by the laws of Leviticus in the Old Testament. And the laws of Leviticus say that if a son dishonors his father like this, the right and just thing to do is for the father to go to the elders of the city who sit at the city gates and say, my son is a punk. And he just told me that he wants me dead. And the city would come and get the son, carry him out outside of the city, and they would throw rocks at the son until the son was dead. It was called stoning. So if you're a child, just ask for grounding and not stoning the next time you, you tell your parents that you wish they were dead. But the father doesn't do what he could have done. He doesn't do that. You heard what he did. He gave the son what the son wanted. And the son went off and, and lived a reckless and extravagant and wasteful life. And he ends up in a pigsty, which again, if you understand Jewish culture, pigs were unclean. So a Jew wouldn't eat pork, much less touch pork, and yet that is now his job. And he has this moment where he comes to himself and he says, what am I doing? What am I doing? How did I get here? Some of us have had one of those moments where you came to your senses and it was like you were sleepwalking through life. 
and you go, what, what did I do? Like, I don't remember any of the last few weeks or months. And how did I get here? This is unreal. Who am I? And the son was overwhelmed. He came to his senses. And, and I had one of these experiences when I was in college at, at Grand Canyon University. Before GCU was a, a famous place, before you saw commercials and there was a billboard and, and they were, it was a popular place. We, I went to it when it was a dump. And literally half a mile away, they didn't know we were there. I mean, it was just terrible. Like the, the, the year after I finished my freshman year, they condemned my dorm and tore it down. I mean, it was just, it was bad. And, and while I was there, I got a, my dream job. I went to work for the people who bought the university. And it was an amazing job for a 20-year-old to have. I, I, I got to pick my salary. I got to hire a staff. Who lets a 20-year-old hire a staff? I mean, um, I had power and responsibility. When I walked into a room, they knew that I was there on behalf of the CEO of the organization. And so I could just literally do whatever I wanted. And it was good and it was terrible. Because it brought out all the worst things in me. I can remember I was dating a girl that summer and she said, look, you either need to break up with me or quit your job because I don't like who you are anymore. My friends came back from summer break and they said, what happened to you over this summer? You're not the Scott that we knew. And finally, when I, when I ended up quitting that job, I, I, I had this moment where I came to my senses and I saw what they saw. And I was like, who am I? Who talks like that? Who treats people like that? And I came to my senses and it took a period of time. It took actually weeks and months for me to realize that I had been looking for things in that job and in that experience and in that pay and in that power that came back empty. Maybe you've had this experience where I thought it would make me happy, but it didn't. Or I thought it would make me fulfilled, but it didn't. I thought it would make me feel loved, but it didn't. And all of us have an it in our lives. And for this younger son, it was wild, reckless living with his father's money. But it came back and it left him feeling empty. He didn't feel loved. He didn't feel important. He didn't feel valuable. See, here's the harsh truth about sin. Sin takes us further than we want to go. It keeps us longer than we want to stay, and it costs us more than we want to pay. That's the truth about sin, and we don't talk about sin a lot anymore, but this is the truth about sin. Whether you're a young son in the first century or you're a high-class, refined, iPhone-carrying, you know, connected person in the 21st century. Sin takes us further than we want to go. You think it's going to just take you right here, just a little thing, and you end up way over there. It keeps you there longer than you want to stay. Sin is like the Hotel California. You can check in, but you can never leave. And it costs us more than we want to pay. It ends up costing you well more than you ever expected paying. And that's why I start this message with, I am the younger son. Because all of us have places in our lives, or periods in our lives, or today in our lives, where we are not where we thought we would be. Where we looked for something to give us something, and you know what? It came back empty. And we find ourselves somewhere asking ourselves, who am I? How did I get here? What went wrong? And we come to our senses. And when we come to our senses, we meet number two, which is, I need a loving father. 
I need a loving father. I said that this story, if you had a physical Bible today, the heading on this section is probably the parable of the lost son or the parable of the prodigal son. Well, I think a better title for this parable is the parable of the loving father. Because I think this parable is more about who the father is, who God is, than it is who we are. I think that's why this parable has lasted with such power. Because of what we learn about who God is and how he responds to how human, humans act. The father, we learn, didn't have the son stoned. He actually accelerated and helped the son fulfill what he wanted, even when he knew that was something that was going to lead to his destruction. And that's how sometimes God works. Sometimes he gives us what we want, even when he knows that's not what he wants. So that we will end up in the place where we're disoriented and confused and turning to him. I said this a few weeks ago, but the most important thing about you, let's skip ahead one slide, is your view of God. The most important thing about you is your view of God. A.W. Tozer said this originally. But the, mo- the reason that this is true is that your view of God is going to drive your view of yourself. This son realized when he came home, that his father welcomed him with love. But that wasn't how the son was preparing to come home. No, he was preparing to come home by preparing a speech because he thought his father was going to lay the smack down. He thought his father was going to begin lecturing him. But instead, the father, it said, was looking and waiting for him. Let's go back one slide. Go back one slide. The father had his eyes on the road. The father doesn't have his son stoned. He gives him what he wants. The father isn't waiting angrily, preparing to let his son have it. No, the father is waiting on tiptoe. It's like he's standing there kind of waiting to see, is he coming? Is he coming? We don't know if at a certain time of day he went out and watched. We don't know if he sat there every day and watched. We have no idea how long the son was gone. What we know is that the son had a father whose eyes were on the road, who was waiting for his son to come home. Now, if you have a physical copy of the Bible today, either on your phone or you brought one physically, now in verses 21 and 22, I want to draw your attention to something. I read this passage out of the message, which is not a popular translation a lot of times in church. But what happens here is the the son says to the father, this is the son's speech. And I prepared a speech like this one night when I came home after after curfew. It was 12.05. My curfew was 12. I know none of you have ever had this problem before in your life. But I was late for curfew. And so I was speeding home, you know, timing the lights, going through on yellow. And while I was driving home, I was preparing my speech. Mom, I'm so sorry. I got caught up in, you know, what's going on. I wish I could time. I'll do all these chores. You know, I was kind of bargaining with my mom. And, and this is what the son does. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But then what's interesting? But the father said to his servants, bring the best robe and put it on. He basically just kind of moves on. It's like he ignores him. 
And that's why Eugene Peterson, his translation says, but the father wasn't listening. Because he wasn't. I mean, this statement is not in the most literal of translations. And somebody said, Scott, you're making an argument from silence. I don't think I am. Let's go back one slide. The father doesn't listen. The son prepares the speech and the father just moves on to giving him his robe. He doesn't say, hey, son, good speech. I appreciate it. You have a very repentant heart. I can see you have a change of heart. I'm glad about that. I'm now going to respond because you've shown me your contrite. But the father just moves on. And we get this sense that this is what the father was going to do all along if his son came home. And the truth is, for many of us, we're speech preppers. When we end up in a bad place, when we make bad choices, when we end up lost and far from home, we start prepping our speech. And we think if we write the best speech, then God will forgive us. If we prepare the best way to earn back God's trust, then we'll get grace. If we show up at church every Sunday in 2017, some of you have perfect attendance. You've been here the last two weeks. Good for you. (laughs) Then maybe God will respond with love and grace and compassion. And yet from this passage, we learn a simple truth. No speech is necessary with a loving father. Just come home. Now that isn't to say that the father does not want us to have our hearts broken and come with repentance. But if we think it's our repentance which earns God's love and grace and mercy, if we think it's our amazing speech or our great actions after we screw up that earn God's love and grace, we've missed the point. We don't know if the son was the greatest son when he came home. We just know he came home. And the loving father welcomed him. The third new reflection is that we are all capable of becoming the older brother. We are all capable of becoming the older brother. You know, this story is actually the third parable in a series of three parables. It's a trilogy of parables from a galaxy far, far away. And you might ask, why was Jesus telling these stories? Well, we learn at the beginning of Luke 15 why he was telling these stories. It begins with, by this time, a lot of men and women of doubtful reputation were hanging around Jesus, listening intently. And the Pharisees and religious scholars were not pleased. No, they weren't pleased at all. They growled, he takes in sinners and eats meals with them, treating them like old friends. And their grumbling triggered this story. Let's go back to that slide real quick. This is why the story gets written. It's because the religious people were frustrated with Jesus. And Pastor Josh preached a fantastic sermon last week. If you haven't listened to it, you can go to prescottcornerstone.com slash archives and check it out. I won't belabor his point. But one of the things he said that was just profound was that Jesus was not the incarnate killjoy. No, Jesus had a reputation for being a glutton and a drunkard. Now, it wasn't that he was a glutton and a drunkard, because we know those are two of the seven deadly sins, the other classically told. But Jesus partied enough and was with people who were that he was cast guilty by association. And Jesus actually enjoyed, it seems, 
being around these kinds of people. Philip Yancey, a writer who's done some fantastic work on Jesus, said this, having spent time around sinners and also purported saints, I have a hunch why Jesus spent so much time with the former group, the, the sinners. I think he preferred their company. Because the sinners were honest about themselves and they had no pretense, Jesus could deal with them. In contrast, the saints put on airs, judged him, and sought to catch him in a moral trap. In the end, it was the saints, not the sinners, who arrested Jesus. See, the sad truth is that the church today is filled with older brothers. In my experience as a pastor, I've seen Christians, myself included, drift. And if we drift, we drift towards self-righteousness. Churches tend to drift. And they tend to drift towards being concerned with their own. Not being loving and outreaching to others. And that's where we find this older son. He's on the outside looking into the party. He comes in from the field and he's been busting his butt. He comes in after a long, hard day's work and he hears a party. And so he grabs his servant and says, what's going on? What did I miss? Oh, your brother's home. Your father threw him a party and he killed the fattened calf. The one thing we own that was saved for the most high occasion. Yeah, he killed that and they're in there eating it, going before there's none left. And the son is enraged. It says that he will not go into the party and the father comes out and begs him. The, the literal language here is that he entreats him. It's almost like he's down on two knees and says, please, son, come into the party. And the son goes, no. No. Not doing it. The son says this in Luke 15. <clears throat> Look, dad, how many years have I stayed here serving you, never giving you one moment of grief? But have you ever thrown a party for me and my friends? Then this son of yours who's thrown away your money on whores shows up and you all go out with a feast? See, the, there's some debate whether the older son got his inheritance or, or not before now. But what we do know is that this older son, he did all of the right things. He did everything right. And you know what it made him? It made him arrogant. It made him proud. It made him think that he was better than his brother. Notice what he says. Then this son of yours, not my brother, not my mangy, no good, piece of junk brother, your son. He doesn't even associate that he's his brother anymore. And this is where I find myself in this story. Because that, that, that kid at age 20 who, who let power go to his head, he thought he was better than other people. A few years later, I got hired by a church in Phoenix to, to work with college students. And one day, a mom came in. And moms don't come to college groups. This mom came in, and she sat there, and she was taking notes, and I was really nervous. Like, why is this mom in my college group taking notes? And a day later, I learned that her son was going to be graduating and moving into my college group, and she was scared to have me be his college pastor. And when I asked why, she said, I used to serve with you when you were a college student in student ministry. And if that's who you still were, I don't want you being an influence on my son. 
because you thought you were better than other people because you didn't do certain things that other people did. I was the older brother. I saw all the things that I had done right. I was the pastor's kid who went away to college and got involved in a church and became a pastor. I checked all the boxes and yet I became the older brother. Friends, when we start justifying ourselves, we end up becoming the older brother. When we're constantly looking at the list of all the things that we've done right, all the ways we've checked the boxes, all the things we've done that are good, and those are the things that we use to justify ourselves. Those aren't bad things. But when they become justifications for us thinking we're something, we become the older brother. And what's even more dangerous is that when older brothers begin looking at other people, we get very good at judging other people who struggle in areas we don't. We are very good at judging other people who struggle with things we don't. Say, you know, I, I was a, a virgin my whole life until I got married. And I've been married for 45 years. It's going to be very tempting for you to judge people who struggle with sexual sin. You say, alcohol has never passed through these lips. It's very tempting for you to judge someone who's an alcoholic. You say, I've always managed my money well. I have savings. I have retirement. Very tempting for you to judge someone who's buried in credit card debt. You know the Bible back to front. You've memorized a thousand verses. You did that sword drill thing when you were growing up. You, or you raced to see how fast you could find things in the Bible. Somebody's in your small group and they've never heard this parable before. Very tempting for you to judge them. We're known not for being, I mean, how many Christians do you know? How many churches do you know that are known for being gluttons and drunkards? Yay, I go to First Baptist Gluttony and Drunkard Church. You know, like... Nobody knows that church, but many towns have first judgmental church. My question for you is, have you become the older brother? Have you become the older brother? Have you allowed what God's done for you to become something that you feel entitled to that somehow you think you earned? And when I say you, I mean me. Because I was reminded even this week that there are places where the older brother has creeped into my life. And here's the truth. The older brother was at home the entire time, but he was never really at home. He was physically at home, but he wasn't at home in his heart. Like the teenager who's sitting at home, but the headphones are in and they're on their phone. They're not really there. The older son wasn't really home. The younger son left home and then he came home. Some of you have been in church, but you haven't been in Christ. You've been in a spiritual religious context and you are a professional Christian, but you haven't come home to that loving father. Here's the fourth observation. We can welcome others home. We can help welcome others home. 
Jesus tells these three stories about a lost sheep and a lost coin and a lost son, and it's because his heart is to welcome people home. Pastor Josh quoted from Luke 5 last week where Jesus said, look, I didn't come to help the healthy. I came to help the sick. I didn't come for those who were found. I came for those who were lost. You may have noticed a little hashtag in the bottom of all of our slides this week, and it says for Prescott. And the reason that that little hashtag is there is because our heart has a huge, our church has a huge heart. Our church has a huge heart for this city and for this world. That's why 15% of every dollar that comes into this church doesn't stay here. I'm still trying to find churches that give that much. The church I came from didn't give that much. Because we're not just here for us. That's why you gave over 300 boxes to Samaritan Purse this holiday. That's why I believe many of you gave almost $120,000, which I just think is amazing because six weeks ago, somebody sat over here, and when I said that goal, they gasped. And I didn't give $120,000. You did. We did. Because our heart is not for Cornerstone. Our heart is for Prescott and for this world. And let me just be clear. We aren't interested in being the best church in Prescott. We do want to be the best church for Prescott. This isn't a contest like, hey, we're Cornerstone. We're better than Heights and we're better than Canyon. We're better than Prescott Christian. We're not in a contest. And if that is a contest, I don't want to win it. That's a terrible trophy to have. We're the best church in town. And guess what? There are still tens of thousands of people who don't go to church and don't know Jesus. We win that contest. We don't win that. We lose. We're not interested in being the best church in Prescott, but we do want to be the best church for Prescott. And what that means is that in the year to come, we've got to find greater and greater ways. Yes, collectively, but also individually to create places for people to be welcomed home. Is your home a place that people can discover that love the Father had, as Josh shared last week? Is your cubicle a place where people can discover that? Is, is, your, is your calendar a place that there's room for people who are younger sons, who are lost, and who are looking to come home? So I've got some next steps for you to think about as we lean into that. And the first one is this, where am I in this story? I want you to reflect on where are you in this story? Where did this story hit you? And where do you say, yep, that's my story? Where am I in this story? Two, what's my next step? What's my next step? If, if you're going, man, I, I really feel God leading me to do that. What, what is that thing that God's leading you to do because of that, that you feel convicted about? Number three, how can I remember my need for a loving father? You don't ever stop needing that loving father. Some of us think that we kind of needed that in the beginning and we kind of moved on from that, you know. We've grown up, you know. That doesn't fit us anymore. We always need a loving father. And then four, how can I help the people who are far from God but close to me? There are people in your life that would never come here, but they'll have lunch with you. They'll never come to this house, 
but they'll go to your house. How can you help those people? Take one step closer to coming home. At the end of all this, and I know I'm about two minutes over, it all comes down to one word, and that word is surrendered. Have you surrendered to the love of the loving Father? Have you come home? Even though some of you have been home physically, have you come home? This would be a great word if you're one of those word for the year people. The word surrendered. That this year you're going to live surrendered to that love. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much that you create a space for us to come home. Despite all of our best efforts to write a great speech and show a great repentant heart, God, you're just interested in us turning around and leaving that way we've been going behind and coming home. You didn't wait for our speech or our repentance or our tears to go to the cross. You went there long before. While we were still in our sin, going the wrong way, you demonstrated your love for us and you gave your life for us. And this morning, I believe that there are some people in this room, some men and women, and some men and women who are watching online, who've never surrendered to that love. If you say, man, I'm the younger brother. I've been going the wrong way. And I want to come home. If that's you, would you raise your hand right now? Thank you. If that's you and you're ready to come home, then I just ask that you would pray this prayer with me. God, I'm ready to come home. I'm ready to leave this way behind. I'm ready to give up doing it my way. And I would want to begin doing it your way. Forgive me of my sins. Heal my wounds. I give my life to you. I want you to be my leader and I want to go your way. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. There are a bunch of other of you that I'd like to ask, are you the older brother? And is today a day where you come home to? It isn't as far of a run. It won't take you as long to get there. But this altar is open and people will be here to pray with you. And tomorrow is not guaranteed. We only have today. And if it's time for you to come home, whether you're the older brother or the younger brother, I pray that you'd come home today. Would you stand and sing with us? Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.